Yes, indeed. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Yes, Indeed podcast. My name, as always, is Brian Caputo. I'm Ben Zager. That makes it a dozen. We're not quite at a baker's dozen. To those keeping track at home, for the bakers in the world. We're one shy of baking. Well, one of us is definitely shy. A. It's me. We're going to talk about some games this week, as always. Um, but it's we're going to go back to our roots, like the trees that we are, and talk a bit more about board games than we have in the previous weeks, which is nice. I think it's nice. I think that people are kind of tired of us talking about video games. Well, yeah. So, as such, the board games we're going to talk about are... Merchants and Marauders, and we're going to talk about what it's like to be a pirate that sells bananas and no one wants bananas. <laughs> we're going to talk about Ethnos, which is a very generically themed board game that is amazing. We're going to talk about Survive, which is about trying to have important people not be eaten by sharks, but you don't <laughs> remember who's important. Then I'm going to do a little doodly download about... Uh, concerts I've been to, mm -hmm. including Lord, Superorganism, and Despaccio. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to do, we're gonna do like a little video, just like just a, a little, little video game. Yeah, just, just because we got to sl slip them in. It's like putting the, the pill in with the doggy food. Don't drug your dogs, people. <laughs> ben is the worst. We're going to talk about Shadow of the Colossus, which is one of the most like hypey games of all time. Yeah. And we're going to talk about A Way Out, which we played. And is not one of the most high-peed games of all time. And we played it. Done. You see, the thing to a good lip troll is to really... You gotta, like, push your lips together. It's a bit hard. It's a bit hard. Try harder. Yes, indeed. It's like the sleepy without the yawn. It's like the shrimp without the prawn. It's like the prawn without the legs. It's like the smelly water without the dregs it's like the dregs without the society it's like the preacher without the piety are you a pirate i'm not but i know how to pretend to be one thanks to merchants and marauders what's that it's a board game and it's really nice and thematic and uh basically you play it it's got it's like a little one of those like really kind of long games that has like a few too many rules yeah, but it's really fun. It's like a it's like a really cool thing to just like completely get lost in a thing with your friends, and basically you're in the like kind of not great for the world colonial era where everybody was all up in the Caribbean, and you each of you have a captain, so you might be like Captain Huelo Beardio, and that would be who you are. Huelo Lombardio? Huelo Berdio. And you're from a country, right? And you're from a country. <laughs> so if you were Dutch and the Dutch were at war with the, the Spanish, then the Spanish would hate you and try to hunt you and murder you. So you're a pirate captain and you're trying to make, you're just trying to make a living. You're not necessarily a pirate. You get to choose. And that's why the game is called Merchants and Marauders because you can play the game as a merchant. You can also play the game as a marauder. So what does that mean? So if you're a merchant, you're kind of just going to ports, picking up some goods, seeing what 
goods you can buy uh, and what is popular around you. And then you might transport, you might go out into the sea, transport those goods, and then do it all over again and just keep doing that until you're a wealthy, superhuman pirate. And you can also... What? Trader. Trader pirate. Right. And if you're, if you want to go around mucking town all over the people, you could also do that. <laughs> so when you say mucking town all over the people, it sounds like you mean that basically it's a it's a game with a, with an econ engine where you're you're either going out picking up goods, going to different ports, selling them to make a profit, or you can have uh, a, a viable economic engine of preying on the people who are building their own engines correct so, or the the game also will spawn ships that you can take advantage of so they they'll spawn like trade galleons and stuff so you don't necessarily need your friends to build up their own economic engines so that you can prey on them you can also prey on the non-player character ships right and i think that that's one of the things that i love the most about merchants and marauders um it's sort of like on the one hand, it is a game that, that has a lot of rules and can go on for a little while. And on the other, it starts to dig into like a lot more of the complexities of the the actual pirate era than, than a lot of pirate content does in the world. Um, so the kind of glorified, like, like villainy, outcast, uh, violent pirate character, uh, that's, that's only one small piece of the puzzle. They have to pay their crew otherwise they won't be able to stay on the high seas they will be mutinied and walked over the plank or whatever pirates did so the <laughs> <laughs> i think that one's at least a myth yeah possibly real possibly real um anyway so <laughs> this is this is interesting because uh one of one of the details that i really love about this game is that the the way that different countries are going to war with each other around the world affects the way that that you are treated and that trade tra uh, trade is treated normally. So if you're a Dutch uh, person on the seas, whether you're a merchant or a marauder, and suddenly the Dutch are engaged in a war with the French or then, the Spanish or the Spanish or whoever, you're everything shifts in terms of the the board position, and you're like. Come on, like people in my home country. I didn't. I'm. I'm just trying to sell goods here, and you keep starting wars. It makes my life really hard. And then you can see how people sort of like fall into being pirates in some ways, just because of the situations there. Which is what happened to me in the bananas. Uh, so what, what happened to you with bananas? <laughs> so pretty much the first turn in the game. Um, so the, the game is a really cool mechanic where whenever you go shopping for goods, you pull a bunch from the deck. And if you buy one, it costs three. And if you buy two, they cost two each. And if you cost three, they cost one each. So they're incentivizing you to get ones that are really similar. And typically you're gonna try to pick one of those, go to the port where it's really in demand, and then you clean up. Because not only did you pay way less than you should have for those, but also they're in demand, so they're worth way more than they should be. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge delta of like economic efficiency. And um, so you're, you're trying to do that. Um, but again, it's like random luck. So if you do get three of the same in your offering, you're like, Oh yeah, this is free money. This is so awesome. This is so easy. And I had that like first turn 
I found three bananas. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I got three bananas. I'm going to have a sweet economic engine that I'm going to make my ship upgraded. And then nobody, even if they're a pirate, can try to attack it. Here's the problem. So I went about the plan. And then the, the GD Dutch were all like, hey, I hate you, Spain. And the only port that really wanted bananas was Spain. So I could go to any old port and sell my bananas for three each, and I'd make like a, a profit of two per banana. But if we weren't at war with Spain, then I would make a profit of four per and double my profits. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to force yourself to do a suboptimal play. So instead, I pretty much just farted around the ocean. <laughs> And then you got sunk by natives. Yeah, and then I got in last place. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, but it is it is really cool. It is it's like the theming comes in so strong because of what you're doing and and what you can do. That's um, there's there's a genre of board games called Ameritrash, which <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but basically there there were a bunch of games that. Um, they had like a lot of text or whatever, and there are a lot of like rules that don't necessarily need to be there just to add to the like theme accuracy. And there's a bit of that in this game, but ultimately, I think once you get up and going, then this game actually ends up being pretty quick. And once you're playing it as a pretty quick game, it's a really nice game that's mm-hmm. like very atmospheric. Like you put on some like C music, you just like. Everybody has their hot beverage of choice, and you just kind of like sit back and play Merchants Marauders, and then potentially get really angry at your friend if they shink your ship. But one of the really cool things about that is that you're a, a lot of your you're competing in this game for glory, and even if your sink if your ship sinks, you'll still maintain the glory that you had had for the most part, and you'll just start the game as a new captain. Mm-hmm. And new captains can have like a pirate sloop that if you're if other, everybody else on the board is, like, fat and happy, then you, with a pirate sloop, you can take out some of your friends who have these, like, Huge. big trade galleons. Yeah. Um, so the game is really interestingly balanced like that. So even if you lose your captain and your ship and it feels like you've lost everything, you're super not out of the game. Well, and, and that creates kind of an interesting uh, emergent narrative of, you know, I, I was in a ship and... And I was attacked by this th- this big ship, and my crew was was killed, but I survived, and I found myself like a small crew of rogues to go and take them down, you know. And, and this again, this this exciting moment comes out that has a cool story that isn't written by anybody except for the players as they play. And because the game has so much like variety in how you could play. It really does give the player a lot of leeway to play the game how they want to play it or or how they want to play it until like someone else makes it so that they can't do it that way and then they just can adapt on the fly and not be penalized too much. Mm-hmm. Now if you're walking around with like 40 gold and you never went back to your home port to stash it away, yeah, if someone takes your ship then you that's that's rough town USA. It's also your fault. It's also your fault. Pirates are greedy. Stash your gold. <laughs> you gotta bury your treasure. You gotta bury your treasure. That's what 
I read on a map once. X. So that's Merchants Marauders. It's like a pretty nice game. If you have a few hours and you don't mind one person learning a ton of rules, it's a very nice time. <laughs> you know what else is a nice time? Ethnos. Ethnos. Hey. It's a game in which you have a bunch of kind of bland fantasy races on a map. And uh, it's really just about having each race have very different mechanics and how they interact with each other. So what does that look like? Well, uh, before we do that, just to do a bit more of the like high level, if you've played this, you like this kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. I think that at the core of this game uh, is very similar to Ticket to Ride. Um, so if you've played Ticket to Ride, and if you're not familiar, it's one of the most popular games from the like board game revolution that's been happening over the last 15 or so years it came out in like 2003 and it's one of those like super super popular ones that um everyone in the hobby has played knows and for me at least it was one of the first board games that i played and absolutely fell in love with it um just because i had never seen a thing like that um and this is a point of comparison for ethnos and ticket to ride so if you have played ticket to ride uh it whatever so uh in ticket to ride you pick up different colored trains and then you can play those colors of trains as a set so the i haven't found a strategy in ticket to ride that beats somebody who has an entire handful of every move they need to make and then plays them one turn after the other just by accumulating cards the whole game and then in the last like 10 turns they play 10 sets of units so that they have like a perfectly connected railway that's the longest amount possible in each, which gives you more points, and then they beat everybody. Ethnos has very similar mechanics. So there's a mechanic called set collection, which is in both of these games. What that basically means is that each turn you're going to be picking up uh, one card from like a middle queue or like one card that's random off the top of the deck and add it to your hand. And then you can play those cards from your hand if you have cards that match in color or in type. So Ben mentioned that you have a bunch of fantasy races in this game. So you can play, let's say, three orcs or three gnomes or three giants together, and that would count. You can also play just three red cards together, um, and that would count as a valid thing you can play. So you're trying to collect these sets in your hand, um, but the really nice thing about it is that you have a hand size of 10, and every card that you don't play in a set, you have to discard back into the middle queue spot. So basically you're being a bit inefficient about your turns if you're doing that, but maybe it's the right thing to do because playing a bigger set is worth more points. So it's a, it's, I think Ethnos is one of the best examples of the easy to learn, hard to master mm-hmm. type of game. It changes immensely with the number of people you play with. It mm-hmm. completely changes everything about the game because not only is there a set collection element to this game, there's also area control element of the game, which is just like all these nice little layers. You also randomize which uh, rate fantasy races you play with every mm-hmm. game. So one game you might play with merfolk and skeletons, and the next game you might play with dwarves and elves and the way those different races interact with each other completely changes the game because different races are 
good at different times and knowing when to pick which race as your leader and going for them and all this kind of stuff is the meat of the game. So there's a lot of meat there. And also I could pick up Ethnos and explain it to you and how to play in like five minutes probably. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's got a pretty simple high level. Here's how you win. Here's how you get points. And then the, where it gets really interesting is moment to moment saying, okay, I have these cards in my hand. These are the things that I could be building toward. Is it worth it to try to build more toward these? If there's a chance that I'll actually just end up wasting time when uh, there's kind of a ticking clock element. And then at a just certain once point, you hit 10 in your hand, you have to play something. Right. And, then, and you might have a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> totally. And, and also if you end around with a bunch of good stuff in your hand you don't get mm. to play it yeah you don't necessarily know exactly when the round's ending basically in the bot throughout the deck there are scattered three dragons and then as soon as the third dragon card comes up then the round's over so you have once you've seen two dragons you know maybe i should play a little bit less risky but you never know if that third dragon is just going to come right after the second dragon or not so there's a there's definitely a lot of like push your luck kinds of stuff going on with that. Totally. Well. And and one thing that's interesting because uh, one one of the things that I've noticed when you talk about ethnos that you bring up pretty much every time is that there's this fantasy world theme on it that just doesn't really matter at all. Uh, and I think that's interesting because the kind of idea of ethnos at its core is probably more similar to something like poker or hearts where you're just trying to find patterns and match them and use risk evaluation about what card could be coming up next than it is lord of the rings you know um and that's that's an interesting like little little keyhole for me into the ways that a lot of people look at kind of board game or any any kind of uh kind of geeky culture and they, they get hit with that initial wave of things and that stigma can be very limiting in, in being able to open the door and explore it. And at the same time, when you have something that's totally bland, like poker or, or hearts or whatever, um, folks are usually more willing to say, oh, that's a game that I would consider, you know? Um, so it is, it is interesting that there are games out there that absolutely do try to have the mechanics dig into, you know, what about the fantasy world is blah, 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 whatever. Um, but Ethnos is basically, again, just like a more nuanced, complex, interesting version of any card game that folks are already familiar with. It's definitely, if you want to get away with a small but really deep board game collection, um, Ethnos is an awesome game to have. I think Ethnos is probably in my top five of games I've played the most of all the games I have. Mm-hmm. And I got it pretty recently, but it was I brought it home uh, to my brother and his wife Larry Kelly, and uh, when I brought it home, they were like, "Ooh, yeah, this is good." And then we <laughs> literally played it like fifteen times that weekend. Yeah, because it's so good, it's so addictive. Because when you lose, you're like, "I wonder which part of what I did didn't work," and then you kind of want to tweak things at the edges. But then you have different races, so. The game is just slightly different than how you've played it before. Mm. Um, so there's, I think it's it's one of those games that's super replayable. Um, 
and if you want to have like a discount really nice board game collection i think it's a super awesome one to have because you can really play it a lot it's super simple it's easy to get to the table because it's not very long either it's like 45 minutes and it's potentially shorter if people know what they're doing um and it plays to six so really there's so many good things going for ethnos that it's it's so versatile in the number of times and how you can play it that it's a really nice game to have for a board game collection, I think. You know what else is a good game to have for a board game collection? Survive! Survive. Escape from Atlantis. We're not going to do the same time thing ever again. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's, it's fun. Uh, so one, one interesting counterpoint um, to what we were just saying about Ethnos is that Survive is all about its theme. And it's all about, you know, I'm going to take the, uh, a story, in quotes, and then put it in mechanics. So what what is the story of Survive? Uh, before we do that, just like a little bit of history, yeah. because I'm a board game nerd. This game's pretty old. It's been around for, I think, 20 plus years. Um, and when a game survives that long and keeps getting reprinted, then you... <laughs> then you, you know that there's something there. Um, and there's definitely something here. Like it's, it's not a particularly complex game, but it's super fun, super chaotic. And the story is super good. So what, what is, that, is story? that story? All right. Well, you, you just judoed the story question back to me. So I'll run with it. Uh, so survive is about, uh, you're on an Island with a bunch of other people and, uh, Oh, the Island starts to sink into the sea because there's a <laughs> volcano that's erupting and, uh, not only is there a volcano that's erupting and that the island is sinking, which are pretty high stakes, uh, in- intense elements. Also, there are lots of scary things in the water. So like sharks and sea monsters and, and, sea monsters whales. and whales. Whales will ruin your boat. So, so basically everyone has these little uh, meeples, these little people uh, figurines that they're trying to get to the shoreline away from the island. And there are boats that they jump in to try to... Um, get together and move quickly through the water. Um, also, as the island starts to sink, so, sometimes there might be swimmers that are trying to swim to shore. And in all of it, uh, there are these bad things that are appearing and happening. So, again, there are creatures like sharks who can eat swimmers or whales who can sink boats and make people in boats into into swimmers. And there are sea monsters that can destroy everything. And And then... There are whirlpools and and all sorts of craziness that you're trying to to get around in order to survive. But a bit more about how the game actually works is so that you're all on this central island that starts disappearing, as Ben said. Um, there are different terrains on that island, so there are like mountains and forests and beach tiles. Beach tiles, and obviously the beach tiles are the first ones to go away. So you might have people who start on the beach tile, but then they like run into the forest and then if they're still around maybe they run into the mountain then <laughs> so it's it is a very it's it's one of those games where it's like it's super cool and thematic you're like oh i can't be on the beach the beach is gonna go i gotta get in like get into the forest oh wow i don't see any i don't see any beaches left i think the forest is gonna go next i gotta get up to the mountain so like it's a very cool like you'll run inland inland but then that just means that you have a harder chance of surviving mm-hmm. because the more inland you go, the more out you have to go to get to the like next, the like survival island, basically, mm-hmm. um, where you're trying to move your meeples. And of course, all of that's fine and good. the The funniest part of the game is that you might have like 
seven or eight meeples or something like that. And they have numbers on the bottom of them. <laughs> and those numbers correspond to how many victory points they're worth at the end of the game. So it's a little, it's a little like... The idea that everybody's created equal, it's not really a present. There's like some people that's worth one, some that's worth six. Listen, we we don't need that in board games. <laughs> we don't need equality. No, nah, whatever. Um, so basically, you're when the first thing that happens in the game is that the island is blank, and each person takes a turn putting a meeple on the island where they can look at the the bottoms to know what the meeples are working and like try to plan it because there are like set boats that start out on the island so maybe you want to have your high value ones by the boats but then maybe other people know that your high value one might be on the boat so they'll try to sink that boat in particular so like bluff it doing that kind of fun mind game nonsense so that's a that's a layer going on then the best part of the game is that once the game starts you can't look at the bottom of any of your meeples so you you have to try to remember where they are but they're moving around constantly. So you're not just like, okay, this is my like southeast meeple. This is my northeast. They're like moving a lot. Well, and the other thing is that uh, even more than just the fact they're moving, the entire game is about creating chaos. So yeah. uh, the way that a turn in the game functions is you start by moving your own meeples. And then you get to sink a piece of terrain. So usually you're strategically doing doing that to hurt the other players. And then you get to to roll a die to see which kind of sea creature you get to do something with. So if you roll a whale, then the whales can try to sink other people's boats. If you roll uh, a shark, then the shark can try to eat a swimmer. Or if you roll a sea monster, then the sea monster can try to destroy everything. <laughs> so uh, so it leads, it leads to a, an environment of everything is going wrong all the time. And in that, on top of needing to think about tactically what what's the best thing you could do on your turn you also have to be remembering what this is your, my six your, yeah These which value ones. exactly and then on top of remembering your own people's value you're trying to figure out what everybody else's value is to figure out how, to, how best to hurt them so if somebody is putting all three of of their people in a boat and and beelining it for the end you're like that boat's probably worth a lot of points if a sea monster just were to happen to get on it. But it might also be worth, like, no points, right, which is be a beautiful thing. So <laughs> the other really, really nice thing about this game is that you might have someone who's rescued, like, four people. You might have someone who's rescued one person, and the person who rescued one person actually has more points than the person who's rescued four people. Right. Because at the end of the game, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm feeling real good. All right, let's flip them over. Oh, oh these no. are all ones. <laughs> The other person's like, I rescued my six. And you're like, <laughs> so it's 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 so good because it's again like everything about that scenario feels like it should be chaotic, and that's reinforced through the gameplay. Mm-hmm. So it is it is really like one of the most thematic games that I think we have, and it's not it's not there isn't like there aren't systems for your brain to like crunch onto and and like really engage in like a puzzly kind of way. But it is, it's just pure fun. Yeah, it's its simple and it doesn't require a ton of of mental effort to get through. The other thing is that I, I tend to be a little wary about games that are really competitive. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an environment that I don't really like. And the, the thing that Survive has that a lot of games don't have is this sense of just silly fun 
Yeah. So when you have a whale that that swims for someone's boat and sinks it, the experience of it uh, isn't like this. Oh man, I've been building this tactical strategy for two hours, and you just you just totally turned on me or whatever. It's that a whale just sunk a boat. Like <laughs> that's just well, the whale's happy to. And the the other thing with whales specifically is that whales don't hurt swimmers; they just sink boats. So then the the swimmers are just hanging out with the whale in the water and everything's fine and also a lot of times when you're in that situation where the whale sinks your boat it's because you probably put your boat in a situation where it could be sunk by the whale yeah uh which is we love that we're like as long as no one rolls a whale movement i'm good <laughs> i'll take this one out and i'll get my six pointer and then the whale comes and you're like swim six pointer uh, the whale comes for me <laughs> Uh, one other thing um, is that the game changes a lot depending on the number of people who, who are playing because you have uh, more elements of randomness between your turn and someone else's turn when you have more people. Yep. So in, in a, in a two-player game, it becomes more tactical and you generally have a much higher scoring game because you can make riskier plays and there's a much lower chance of somebody getting in the way of that. Yep. Versus in a... In a large number game, we just played one last week with four people. From one turn to the next, the like half the island started to sink, and <laughs> now there's like a shark and a whale that are like right circling a boat that was not like in clean water before. And there's a lot more kind of team pile on of people speculating about who has what and how many points people have and who's the target and everything. Um, so it is. It, it does become a much more crazy experience with more people, which which is really fun. I would also say that of the games I have that I think would be really good to bring and play with my family in any capacity, like any age, any level of board gaming experience, I feel like Survive is one of those games that does the best at being playable with any sort. Because again, that's that's a theme that absolutely anybody can get behind. And also, it's simple enough that a lot of folks, the the reason they don't want to play board games is they don't want to get the big, huge rules dump and then get overwhelmed, and there isn't that in Survive. No, totally. Eat the bamboo. Eat the bamboo. Eat it. Eat it. Yes, indeed. It's like the Z Zamboni without the ice. It's like the Zamboni without the slice. It's like the slice without the knife it's like the pressure to create creatively without the strife it's like the strife without the struggle it's like the lame wizard without the muggle <laughs> that's not nice. what that means that's all right. That's all right. concerts we didn't do it together that's fine I went to a lot of concerts because I am, uh, I always do that. And plus it's April and apparently that means that it's concert season because my calendar got real mystical real fast. Yeah. And April and May is a nonstop concert palooza, except <laughs> I'm not going to Lollapalooza this year. So it's just a lot of concerts. Just less of a palooza and more of a concerts. <laughs> so what which concerts did you see most recently um so i think the the three i wanted to touch on were despaccio lord and super organism 
So to start, I, I, my brain is only capable of working through those temporally. So let's start with Despaccio, which is the one I went to first. Um, so Despaccio uh, means slowly in Italian, which is very appropriate because this is, and this is all of the LCD nerds already know a ton about Despaccio. What it is is it's James Murphy, who's the lead singer, went and with the people in a band called Soul Wax, built custom audio systems that are basically like way more hi-fi radio than hi-fi speakers than you normally have for like dancing setups. And then they have a bunch of them. They position them on a dance floor. They have like a custom dance floor and a big disco ball in the middle. And um, we'll basically just pick vinyls and play them all night for eight hours, specifically at like 96 to 103 beats per minute. Um, and it's just like, if you went one, two, three, four, one, two, you count literally the whole night's worth of music, which is amazing. And it is, it is really, it was like a really special thing and atmosphere. And, you know, all of this, all of the speakers were behind like red velvet ropes. So it felt like they were the VIPs and like James and the other DJs were kind of like squirreled away in the corner. You kind of had to look really hard to be like, oh yeah, that is James Murphy. Um, and I think they were rocking out, but again, I don't know because we weren't looking at them, which is huge. If you can go to a dancing event where the the event's more all about the dancing and the music and not about you staring at someone on stage who's just messing around with stuff on a computer... That's amazing. And especially if you've been to any kind of modern day dance thing, that's incredibly refreshing for you. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And you've you talked before about how James Murphy's LCD sound system in a lot of ways emerged out of this, this urge to create music that people could just dance to. Yeah, and I think they they're even... A lot of the reason they were a bit annoyed at live shows was that everybody was there and looking at the band and they're just kind of standing there. And to him, that's like the most depressing thing that could happen at a live music show. Um, Cause he grew up a punk kid. So he wants, you know, the audience to be doing their own thing and then be like, Oh yeah, there's a band performing for us. Um, that being said, LCD is too much of a spectacle not to watch them on stage. But that's why Despacho is like a perfect thing and a perfect like James Murphy side project because every there everybody there was dancing. People didn't really have their phones out. Maybe they did to have like to Shazam a song um, because they have like intense, super intense, weird backfill vinyl nonsense um, of like songs that people haven't heard before, like. Ooh, I've never heard this cut of the safety dance before. Like it's, and they literally did play the safety dance, um, <laughs> which was awesome. And they played like "Here Comes the Sun" at like three a.m. and shined a big yellow light on the disco ball, and it was so perfect. And it is, it's so special to hear. First of all, the mix was so perfect. Like it wasn't trying to like overwhelm you with the bass. It was just trying to sound really good. So um, I think our buddy Q described it right. Um, cause they, they went with me and they, they mentioned that it was nothing but body. You could really feel all of the music like in your chest right there. Um, which was so amazing. Um, just to hear it, whether you were like directly in front of a speaker or in the middle of the dance floor, you always heard this really clean and crisp sound where you're like, I can't imagine the song sounding better than right now. Um, 
and the way those songs intertwine with each other and there were different genres and being played of like sometimes there'd be like house songs and disco songs and uh like punk song like it was there was like whatever people felt like playing it felt right because they were really like curating a thing specifically um and the dance floor was really cool and was like checkered white and black like a chessboard it was just really cool um and if you're me and you really like going and dancing it's so cool to be in an event i mean there was still a lot of it but for the most part you go to a dance thing these days and a lot of the time people spend is like literally walking back and forth because they're they go to get a drink they go back to where their friends are someone goes to the bathroom they leave they come back to where their friends are they leave the dance floor for a bit they come back and people are obsessed with their positioning on the dance floor for reasons i cannot begin to understand um i'm mostly stationary this whole time and like have to like coil up when people move past me so it's nice to be in a place where everybody's so obsessed with dancing and having a good time there that i can just be there and be dancing and the world just is more or less in like a state around me yeah totally and and uh that was a very different experience than some of the other shows you went to yes so the others i went to were a bit more of traditional shows in very different ways obviously so lord you may have heard of Lord, uh, <laughs> um, is I, and again, like, so my, my, usually my sound profile doesn't overlap very much with like huge pop stars. There are certain pop songs I really like, but for the most part, it, it doesn't, there isn't like a huge overlap, but Lord's this special weird example where she's always kind of sounded a bit like the indie scene, which is why I think a lot of folks in my umbrella and circle and stuff were drawn to her in the first place with you know royals and like tennis club and like her first record it sat it didn't quite they were poppy really poppy songs but they had a bit of that indie sentimentality and then for me there was a bit of a state shift as that shifted into her new album um melodrama which for me is like a nearly perfect album. Like it's amazing. Mm. It's it's really poppy, but it's um, it's really it's melodramatic. It's it's like a very specific moment in Ella's life. Ella's Lord um, in Ella's life, um, where she was just going through some stuff, and a lot of the songs are like angry or sad or you know about finding the strength to move on and and like that early adulthood period where it feels like everything is super significant and you, but you need to like figure out how to live with that basically. Um, so inherently all the songs are like either like sad or angry or like, they're not, they're not like the really happy. Let's love all love each other kinds of love, like pop songs that you usually hear. So there's just something different about them. And they just like, there's a lot more emotion captured. I, I feel I feel in those notes than I do in normal songs, um, and it's just got so much style and panache. And seeing her was like, at especially at the melodrama tour was, for me, absolutely incredible. Because not only is she amazing in her own right, but her she has so much like confidence and she really carries herself on stage of like. I'm demanding this from you because I'm so into this. And I love that reaction of artists. So like pretty early on the show, she was like, well, I know New York has kind of like a reputation for, you know, standing around, but you're in my house. <laughs> and I was like, 
all right, this evening is going to be awesome. <laughs> and, you know, there there was, like, a lot of spectacle and stuff. For the most part, though, you were just kind of drawn to Lord, just, like, being really intense uh, the whole time during the show. And um, she definitely was, like, was enough of a performer to carry the show, which was amazing. And, you know, when she plays songs like Liability and, like... Uh, hard feelings like it's it it's just so good and it's it's just so nice she's so good and it's like every single time i listen to melodrama i like it more and it's and one of the best things about like music is when you're still in the kind of formation parts of figuring out how songs are going to be identified in your head having live moments impact that is a really special and powerful thing because now when i go and listen to uh, writer in the dark i'm gonna think about lord performing it in front of like uh basically sold out twenty thousand person arena mm. and having like all of the confidence to to just like be super like oh yeah about a song that's refrain is like you're gonna rue the day you kissed a rider in the dark and you're like <laughs> lord oh it's really it's really something and i think definitely as we go back and look at like pop stars of the 21st century lord's gonna have like a little special nook carved out for her because she's something special and very opposite kind of show i went to like see a new indie buzzy band called super organism that do psychedelic pop and this kind of goes along with my my theory I had a couple of years ago when Sylvanesso's album came out and I was like, okay, all of the super insanely interesting stuff is happening with genres being blasted together now because yeah, new genres will like emerge eventually throughout whatever musical nonsense. But there are also a lot of these people who like different types of music and they have all of it at their fingertips now. So they're going to make music that sounds like completely different worlds of music that haven't hung out together before. And then you get this really cool innovation. Um, and Sylvanesso is like that because you have like a classically trained folk singer plus like a beats EDM producer guy. And when they make music, it doesn't sound like anything that's come before. Mm. That makes sense. So super organism are kind of doing that with like psychedelic music, which I normally don't like because it's very relaxed. It's not driving very much because it's, it's about like closing your eyes and going, whoa, kind of. Um, and, but when those songs are pop songs, there's a structure and a force and a driving to it that lets you relish in the like, um, it's a bit neon Indian, but it just sounds very different and it's a lot more energetic. Um, you just get like way more into these songs because they have these like weird sounds, the, the like kind of stuff that you wouldn't hear in non-psychedelic songs, but are really interesting to hear in pop songs. So I went and saw them, and it was like a sold-out, like, hypey musical Williamsburg show. And they were just so much fun. They were very clearly super excited to be there. The lead singer's deal is that she's, like, kind of nonchalant about stuff. Um, like, they have a song called Nobody Cares, and that's, like, what the vibe they almost have. But in between songs, she was like, okay, this is really cool this is so cool like thank you all so much for being here this is so cool and it, that was really nice and they have uh they they have like s screens kind of randomly displayed on their stage and had like pretty insane graphics and psychedelic 
stuff going on. And they had three people who were like backup singers who were very up and were dancing the whole time and were carrying the show almost because they were so much fun to look at and to like partake in their energy. Um, especially since the lead singer's vibe was like, nobody cares. So that was really cool. Um, and yeah, I think I was, I was talking to my coworker uh, at ASCAP uh, who had also been at the show, Michael, and he said, I haven't been to a show where I don't have any emotional connection before and really enjoyed myself. And that's kind of the vibe I got there because it was just like my ears aren't used to hearing this sound and it's really nice and I like that I'm hearing this. So yeah, concerts are good. Do them. Biah! Bill. Biah! Biah! I'm horse. Bill. Biah! 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 I'm horse. Howard Dean. Biah! Yes, indeed. It's like the kids without the pissing in the pool. It's like the Ben without the sleeping drool. It's like the drool without the pillow. It's like the weeping without the willow. It's like the willow without the growing. It's like the lawn without the mowing. Metallica. <laughs> Speaking of concerts. <laughs> uh, the only possible segue we could have between <laughs> concerts and video games. Shadow, Shadow of the Colossus. Colossus. Wow. We didn't even plan that oh, one. Oh, man. Yikes. So, Shadow of the Colossus is a game that Please came take, out thank you. a long time ago. It's uh, PS2 A long era, time ago in, like, video game, video game well, world. I mean, that's the thing, though, is that video games are so young that even when you have a game that uh, is really radical and revolutionary, that that can be outdone or, like, thought about in new ways over the course of just a couple of years because people are still experimenting in such a huge way. It's true. So, Shadow of the Colossus... Did come out a while ago in video game history terms. Um, not like ye oldie text-based green flickery screen days, but uh, the the days of, of kind of like mainstream console games. You know, like I remember being in elementary school and like the kind of like cool kids being like, oh man, I just got this new game for my PS2. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's uh, that's what, uh, what Shadow of the Colossus is. And... I didn't grow up with a console, so I never played it when I was younger, and you hadn't either. So a while back, we played it uh, on a service that let us stream PlayStation games to our computer. Basically, they have warehouses and warehouses of PlayStation 3s that are running old games that you can rent. And then stream. That's that particular PS3 unit out of warehouse B or whatever. Right. And we did that. Just so that we could play Shadow of the Colossus, basically, and and to be clear, you can you can play them. You're not watching someone play them. You, Correct. You are running them remotely um, over over the internet, which is kind of a cool new thing. Also, super weird. Super weird. <laughs> um, so they just they just released uh, like an updated, remastered, basically like super high definition, pretty version of, of this old game. And the, the original version is definitely pretty. Yeah. But the remaster, and I think the reason that's been reviewed so well is that it really highlights the beauty of the original game and only enhances stuff in a way that plays to the game's original strengths. Like, it doesn't try to add things that weren't a part of the game, but, like, you're walking through the field and that maybe there's like very subtle butterflies now. Right. Like that's what the remaster added. <laughs> totally. And, and, and it is this interesting question of graphics versus aesthetics. We can, we can dig deeper into a, 
remasters at some point. But uh, but I I mean the big the big reason the remaster is a big deal is that now you can play Shadow of the Colossus on a PS4. Right. So uh, we we uh, have been playing it through with a friend of ours who has never played it before, Catherine. Catherine. And uh, and the the thing about Shadow of the Colossus that still gets me every time is that video games tend to be this this power fantasy where you're able to as one person like do do these superhuman feats and the game a, a lot of games uh the way that they they give a player that experience is by having them do something that a normal person could do and then do it a lot versus shadow of the colossus is something that no human could be able to do so basically the way that the gameplay yeah, works, should, is, we should probably explain what it is. Yeah, so <laughs> it's this it's this big sprawling open world that, unlike kind of modern quote unquote open world games, is basically completely desolate. So you're just a lot of the game is just spent riding around on your horse across these like sweeping plains and this like collapsing civilization. Uh, like yeah, you you really get the sense and, that. Yeah. Uh, this place had a lot of life in it before. Yeah. And you're there afterwards. Totally. And that kind of is this intense tone that's left with you as you start the game and you're exploring. You always kind of have that presence in the back of your mind. The presence of an absence, which is like really hard to pull off. Yeah. I remember in, in film school being told that being able to give someone a sensation of absence is really hard to do. And they do a great job of it in Shadow of the Colossus. Yep. Um, and then you arrive at these, these places where for kind of mystical, via your horse, yeah, via your horse. Um, uh, and for, for story reasons that aren't super worth going into, uh, you're, uh, driven to find these massive creatures, these colossi and take them down. And the way that that works is it's, it's, uh, kind of a climbing puzzle in a way. So it's, it's definitely that. like if you're used to any kind of games like Zelda or whatever that have environmental puzzles, this is like that, except the environment puzzle you're solving is also the enemy. Right. So the entirety of the thing takes place on a moving, living creature. Right. Which is to emphasize what Ben said, huge. Like you feel pathetically tiny when you see the Colossus for the first time and you're like, but I'm so little. <laughs> and and then at the same time you you are able to like find find the solution to the puzzle. You find these weak points and you're able to take down these giant creatures. And then again also uh unlike Zelda where the environment is the puzzle as you said in in Shadow of the Colossus, the Colossi is the puzzle and that also means that they're they have they have a a mind. They can think and act. Um so So they instance, react to when you're like on their back. <laughs> they're like they like try to wiggle you off. They're like, oh, what's this what's mosquito doing on my back? This is annoying. <laughs> like we've all been there. So, uh, and then additionally, there's like certain ways to to trick their minds. So if you hide in a place, they'll like look for you there. And then you like the one of the ones that we just did this past week was uh, this big one. Who when you hide in this little alcove, it leans in to look at what you're doing. Ooh. Where it, is it? And it has this big dangly beard. 
and you can like leap out from the alcove and grab onto its beard and then it like lifts its body back up and you are like scaling the beard as it's like shaking its head around trying to fling you off and you the the game is all based around stamina um and unlike the way that a lot of modern games use stamina this is so much based in kind of like moment to moment physical strength so there's a lot of moments where you know you you're trying to to get to a place on the body of this colossus where you can just stand for a second as it's walking around or flying around or swimming around or whatever and just like catch your breath for a second before you know it starts to shake its head which you know if if they're like flinging their head up and down it looks you have like to hold on you have to hold on or you get flown off like flung off and usually you get hurt pretty bad um so that's that's what we mean when we say metallica is because <laughs> <laughs> when they're shaking like shimmying their shoulders or whipping their head back and forth it does it does look like they're rocking out even though they're just trying to stop you from stabbing them in the head so many times yeah and and we could go on about shadow classes more and we we're currently partially through it in our replay with Catherine, so i think we'll probably talk about it in future weeks a bit more and kind of give you a bit more closure on what's going on and stuff without well, without doing spoilers. Yeah, the one the one teaser that I'll throw in is that it it does a great job of introducing this weird dissonant sadness to everything. Definitely. So unlike a lot of games where it's just like, oh man, I killed stuff, I feel awesome. There's a lot of like questions all throughout the game of like, why does this character want to do this thing and, and are they acting morally? You know, like when when you see a colossi kind of like slowly collapse to the ground, it's this like sad sense of you destroying history. Because you you're you're already in a world with absence, and you're making it more empty. And not only are you making it more empty, you're taking these big, majestic, beautiful things that are like a million times your size, and you're stopping them from existing forever. Yeah. That's, so rough to be continued you know what's not to be continued a way out, out. That, that game's over so it's this <laughs> it's this game called a way out that that we've been looking forward to for a long time and we uh we finally had a chance to play it because it got released we and were to be clear we were super hyped on it yeah because of its premise so first most important thing to know about it is it's written by joseph something and he wrote Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons, which is a game that is a super awesome and has really interesting mechanics and has a really good story. It's really nice. Well, so also to, to give things more context, he used to be a filmmaker. So ah, in, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a, a big, I think, Israeli filmmaker or something hmm. um, for a while. And it's it's really clear from his work that he he isn't leaving that behind in any way you know like he still thinks about things in terms of their story not in terms of their mechanics as much and he he said multiple on multiple occasions how much he believes in games now way more than he believes in film and how he he like thinks film had a place and and like has advantages and the opportunities with games are just so much greater and and uh he's an interesting case study because his his work, both brothers and this, are clearly with uh, a person who's trying stuff out, you know, who's taking games as they've always been and rather than just like 
finding a way to basically replicate what's been done before and then make a little tweak to, to like tune the back end to make it more fun or exciting. He's basically coming at it from a totally different angle and trying some weird stuff. So for example, in Brothers, the, the control scheme was one half of the controller controlled one brother and the other controlled the other. So you usually play it through as a single player experience where you're solving puzzles between two characters using one set of controls, which is a weird thing to do with your brain. Um, and when we played it through, we each shared one half of the controller and each basically played as one of the brothers, um, which is a totally valid way to play through it. And with a way out... Just in case you're listening and you're like, Van <laughs> Brian, they cheated. No, we, it's valid, everybody. I, I think it's valid. Um, so so uh, a way out is... Uh, we kind of like came at it thinking... Uh, and in some ways, many ways, the, the developers also came at it thinking, what if we went went even farther with that? You know, what if we actually made it so that it was two characters controlled by two people and and what how could we play with the the story using that method? And it's exclusively two player. Right. So yeah, which is why we were hyped. Alone. It was a story based exclusively two player game. We were like, we're two people and we love story. And they and they do a lot of weird, cool stuff with it. And yeah. um they they definitely kind of like tried to do way more than they they could. Yeah, there's like a lot of ambition, and they tried to to have it be as good at all of the things it was doing as possible. So there's like exciting action sequences and chase sequences, and uh, there's cool puzzles. The whole game is in split screen, which is weird, basically. And definitely, some of the things work better than other things. Mm -hmm. So like. There were times where it really felt like we needed to work together or like one of us needed to do a, a specific thing to help another person out. So like you you do the like both of your backs are against each other and you're climbing up a wall up like a shaft together with your feet out. And and you we had to go at the exact same time. Otherwise, we'd fall. Right. That kind of stuff feels really cool. And like this definitely needs to be a co-op game. And then there were like some of the really cool action sequences like there is a particular scene where you're like running away in the hospital and it like the camera keeps cutting back between ben's character trying to escape and my character trying to escape and it's so stylish mm -hmm. and it's so cool and it wouldn't work if it was like if it was just one person running away and like all the stuff was happening to them it would be fine but because it was going between our two characters there was just something about it where it was it was way cooler than anything like that i've seen before right and and the other thing that again was one of the reasons that we were really excited about it is that the characters are a huge part of the experience of the game so rather than a lot of co-op games where it's just like here's another copy of basically the same kind of person you both can work together to push a button and solve a puzzle um there's some role playing involved where um one character is kind of more of the hothead type and the other is more like of a thinker and and method person so in that se sequence in the hospital you're talking about one character is like charging through rows and rows of of enemies like and punching their way out and the other person's like sneaking let me sneak through this air vent like, <laughs> it's really cool to see those things like sequences right after each other back and forth of like oh god i gotta be really careful because if they find me this would be unsmart and then the other person's just like 
yeah, if there's more people who come, I'll just punch them out. <laughs> and then sometimes those two interact with each other in different ways. So you'll be sneaking through a vent and right below you, another the other character will be like knocking somebody around with a with a lamp or something. Yeah. Um, and then and then building on that, there are all these sequences, like a surprisingly large number, again, for kind of a small game um, where you can choose which character's way you want to go about solving a problem. So there's... They kind of like have this moment where they look at each other and then both of the players have to agree on like each character. Like will have to like, agree. Yeah. Like you can't choose different ones. Right. The, the one character will kind of like be like, I think we should, you know, like sneak in and distract them. And then we'll like steal the thing that we're going after. And the other's like, like cocks the gun and says, we could just walk in. Yeah. And then the two players have to agree on which character's way you want to go about doing things. And I'm sure if you were playing the game as like two people who were like strictly role playing their characters and like really trying to advocate for other thing, those would be like really tense moments. But for us, we just liked them a lot because there were moments where we're like, all right, which one's funnier? Which one are <laughs> we're doing that one. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, again, without, without uh, going too deep into it, there's definitely, a lot of experimentation that goes down and some of those experiments work well some of those experiments don't work well and, and, and some of them the like you could tell they were they were trying to like this is a co-op experience and we wanted to like we we need them to like be in two different screens and do actiony stuff and it felt kind of forced like mm -hmm. it didn't necessarily need to be that um so i think the game really flourished when it was like you need what I'm doing right now to happen right now where it was like, you really rely on each other in games like overcooked or like other really good co-op games. If someone isn't pulling their weight, then everybody fails. Right. That this game was lacking some of that, but when it was working really well, then those moments were really strong. Also, there's a bad ending. <laughs> I can't say more, but Ben thinks the ending's interesting and I hated it. Yeah. So that's a thing. That's it. That's the episode uh, 13 of the Yes Indeed. Nope. 12. We're not at the Bakers yet. Oh, the Bakers. We'll get to the Bakers next, I, next time. I just wanted the Bakers, Ben. No Baker for you. No, bye.